The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. What a great service we have this morning. Um, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. It is a privilege to open God's Word with you, and I love this time of year. Uh, I think it's Martin Luther said that God wrote the truth of the resurrection on every leaf in springtime. And I love that quote. I love this season. Um, and I love this week where we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Savior. Well, today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week, and uh, we move towards the resurrection on Easter Normally on Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We call it triumphal because everyone gathered around the roads. They, they packed out the streets. They threw their cloaks down. They grabbed palm branches, broke them off the trees. They're laying them down. They're waving them, and they're calling out to him. This is what Luke says they said. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. But what a difference a week makes. In just a week, within a very short time, Jesus, he's arrested. He's betrayed by those close to him. He's accused. He's tried and tortured and sentenced to be executed. And this morning, instead of looking at what is maybe a traditional Palm Sunday passage, we want to we teach through all the, the stories of the crucifixion and resurrection that we have in Scripture. So we're moving into Luke, the first part of the crucifixion story from Luke's account. Um, so we'll be starting there this morning, as you saw, as we read. And let me pray for us as we prepare to jump in and study together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and what it reveals. I thank you for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and every 
angle that you have given us, every story you have recorded, every true story. Lord, as we study this morning, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and the Spirit to grasp and understand like the dying thief. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've jumped ahead in Luke. Jesus has gone through a trial already in which no guilt was found. No guilt. In fact, he's declared innocent by Pilate himself. Three times, Pilate came back to the leaders. I find no guilt in this man. Have you ever watched like an actual courtroom scene where they, they show the verdict at the end and, and the, they stand up from the jury and say, we find the defendant not guilty. And, and there's tears, there's hugging, there's crying, depending on which side of the room you're on. And three times they came back. We have nothing. In fact, four. They appeal to Herod. Herod sends them back. There is nothing in this man. Can you imagine going to court, not once, not twice, three times, and being proved innocent? Not a single thing. And now, and think about that. There weren't just random people assigned to this case to prosecute Jesus. They had watched him. For three years, they had observed everything he did. They were looking for fault in him. Do you remember how they tried to trap him? How they tried to trick him? And now when the moment comes, they put him in impossible scenarios where if he says this, he's wrong. If he says this, he's wrong. And yet Jesus still comes out without guilt, completely innocent. They have nothing against him. And Pilate says he is innocent. Herod says he is innocent. The court of human law cannot build a case against him. And But the crowd rages. They demand. And it says Pilate gives in to the will of the crowd. So they're essentially saying this. We don't care who Jesus is. We don't care what he's done. We don't want him to be king. He threatens our power. He threatens my position. He threatens my income. I don't care who he is. And I don't care what he's done. Kill him. That's what they're saying. And so it says this. Pilate releases the one who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Barabbas, if you remember this character. But he delivers Jesus the innocent over to death. So the only way Pilate's going to agree to kill Jesus is as a substitute for someone truly guilty. So Barabbas is yet another sinner saved from death by the sinless and sacrificial Savior. And so Pilate gave Jesus over to the Roman guards. They beat him. They mocked him. They spit upon him. They whip and tear at him till he can barely walk. Y'all, how great is the love of God for you in this moment. Imagine someone you love right now, a spouse, a friend, a best friend, a child, a parent, watching them be spit upon. As they turn this way, they're hit from that side, surrounded. Does not, as you imagine that, does not everything inside of you stand up and pull your arm back? How great is the love of God for you in this moment to withhold, for Jesus to willingly receive this abuse and punishment for you, for me. The love of God holds back 
and what must just pull at his heart. He loves us with a love so powerful that carries him through this moment. And so now we come to verse 32, where Luke tells that Jesus was led away to be put to death with two others who Luke adds were actually criminals. So they travel to Golgotha, the place called the Skull, and it's because these, these outcropping of rocks and caves literally look like a skull on the hillside that Jesus is moving towards. And these criminals and, and Jesus were made to carry this crossbeam on which they would be crucified. They're carrying it on their backs. But at this point, Jesus is so severely beaten. If you think about it, the weight of the world's sin on him, so heavy, he can barely stand. And so Simon of Cyrene is pulled in. He's from Africa. He's asked to carry his cross. They arrive at the skull, and the nails are driven in to hands and feet. They pierce him. They fix him to this cross. He's raised in the air, and he's dropped into place. So there's Jesus with arms outstretched, as if reaching out to the world and to the the thief on his right and on his left. And if you'll go home today, you'll read through Luke's account. Maybe you'll have the same reaction as I did this week. With each scene, I get more frustrated. I'm like, Pilate, what are you doing? How, are you, how can you not be a man of justice in this? How can you let this happen? And I'm like, Jesus, why are you not speaking up? Why are you silent? in the face of your accusers. And where are all the followers from a few days ago? Where did these people go? And I ask in my mind, what is Jesus thinking? What is going through his mind? And then Luke writes something so astounding, something that gives us full vision and access into the heart of Christ. And it's completely opposite of every emotion and thought I had as I read through it. Luke gives an astounding intercession from the sacrificial savior jesus intercedes that word means that he prays he gets between you and god he stands for you and he cries out for the soldiers for the religious leaders for all of humanity he prays father forgive them for they know not what they do in the center of the heart of Christ is the forgiveness of sinners. At the core of who Jesus is, the desire that you and I would be forgiven. If he can pray it over the very ones driving the nails into his hand, how much more for us? I think the songwriters got it right when they wrote the modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You know this hymn? They said, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I Meaning it was our sin that bound Christ to the cross until it was fully, forgiveness was fully accomplished. So Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. And this prayer, this prayer of Jesus answered by his death. That's how God answered it. The prayer of Jesus answered by his death, which opens the way for us to be forgiven. Jesus came to die so that you and I might live. So we see it immediately. Actually, one of the Roman guards, a centurion, comes to faith. 
And we see that uh, many of the priests, Luke writes in Acts 6, he says, a great many of the priests came to faith. Um, but I love what Philip Ryken says. He says, God has been answering this prayer ever since. And he says this, and Jesus has been praying this prayer ever since. Right now, he's at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Praying from the throne, just as he prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them. Hebrews 7 says, he lives, he always lives to make intercession for us. So I read an incredible story this week. In World War II, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, America responded with a bombing attack called the Doolittle Raid. And in that raid, American Jacob DeShazer was shot down over Japan. He was imprisoned for three years where he was tortured and kept mostly in solitary confinement. During that time, he was given a Bible. I don't know how he got it, but he read it all the way through. He was not a believer. And then he read through it again, and he read through it again, and again, and again, and again. And he says, sometime between the first and sixth reading, he became, he became a follower of Jesus. He repented of his sins and received faith in Christ from the Lord. And what's amazing is that after the war, he felt led by the Lord to go back to Japan and to preach the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. And so he wrote out a pamphlet titled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. He made one million copies and distributed them all over. And uh, one of the men who picked one up was in a train station. His name was Mitsuo Fuchida. Mitsuo was the lead pilot in the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was the one who called out, Torah, Torah, Torah. And as he read this pamphlet, he had been tortured by a longing for forgiveness, as well as realizing he has no ability to forgive the crimes done against him. And he longed for that. And having read this story, he got a Bible and he read it. He says the verse that changed his life forever was from Luke 23. When he read, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he said immediately he saw that at the heart of God was forgiveness and the desire, the power, the supernatural ability enabling us to forgive our enemies as well. How do we respond to the heart of Jesus Praying to the Father that you might be forgiven. Well, there are many responses on this day. Luke shows us two. Those who strongly reject the sacrificial Savior and one who humbly receives him. So let's look first at the rejection of Christ. Luke describes this crowd in three groups. There's the indifferently watching. There's the actively mocking. And then there's one cynically raging. Verse 35 says, the people stood by watching. What did they come to see? For many, we know what, this had become kind of the weekend entertainment was to watch public executions. This crowd was filled with all sorts of people. They saw Christ suffering. They saw the wounds. They looked upon him. They observed how he was mocked. They watched as the life left his body. It appears they neither ridiculed nor revered him. They neither attacked nor adored him. With passive indifference, they watch and stare as if to say, so what? So what? Well, my prayer this week 
is that all of our hearts would hear God's gentle but very clear answer. It's so that you and I would be reconciled. So that you would not have to bear the sins on your own. But then there were those who actively mocked. Luke writes, this ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. These words so clearly reflect Psalm 22's prophecy of the cross. It was written a thousand years before Christ's death. It says, scorned by men, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. They divide my garments. They cast lots for my clothing. Each scripture fulfilled throughout Christ's life just reveals with absolute clarity this is the plan of God to redeem us through the death and resurrection of his son. But listen to what their mockery reveals. I wonder if you heard this. They say, he saved others. Let him save himself. Do you hear what they're admitting? Not only has Jesus been declared innocent four times, they now confess that all they ever saw Jesus do was save people. That's it. That's all they know about him. He healed the paralytic. They saw him stretch out and restore the withered hand. He healed the bleeding woman. He gave blind Bartimaeus his sight back. He, gave, he opened the ears of the deaf and the mute. He cast out demons from people's loved ones. He raised Lazarus from the grave. Listen to this. He even raised the daughter of their friend, Jairus, the synagogue ruler. They have witnessed the love, compassion, and heart of Jesus to save in the most personal of settings. And yet they mock him. And they call for his execution. Again, it, as at the trial, it's as if they're saying, we don't care who he is or what he's done. We don't want him to be our king. And now the Roman soldiers join in the mockery. They offer Jesus sour wine. They taunt him to save himself. So the sour wine is the fulfillment of Psalm 69. The Roman soldiers, though, meant it as a royal joke. They're shoving the sponge up into his face off a reed, saying, drink, O king, your royal wine. And so Luke points out the placard above Jesus' head on the cross. You see, Pilate, with this kind of a sarcastic vengeance toward the Jewish leaders, had written the title, This is the King of the Jews. Normally what would be written over a crucified criminal's head is the crime they'd committed, but there was no crime. And in anger and frustration probably over being manipulated, Pilate demands that it be written as a title rather than an accusation. And he puts it in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, almost like a universal decree. This is the king of the Jews. John tells us the leaders go crazy. They plead for Pilate to change it, just change it and read that he claims to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. And so there Jesus hangs, declared innocent in human courts, 
known in the world by his friends and enemies as one who saves, by his saving works. And he's being mocked, tortured, and executed. And now the final scene of this passage, Luke shows us the opposite responses of these two criminals. And we've seen already, you're going to continue to see as we get back to the first half of Luke, that Luke often used two people, a compare and contrast, to really emphasize his point. For example, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. But here Luke compares the two dying criminals sharing the same fate as the innocent Lord Jesus. So they're described as robbers, and a robber is actually more than a petty thief. A robber uh, was a stronger word. It's more in line with armed and violent robbery, to take something by force uh, with physical harm. Um, and robbery under Roman law was not punishable by death. And though this is just a mockery of justice on uh, Roman law, um, we can assume that it's probable the crimes and guilt of these criminals is far more reaching than just robbery. And so this criminal being punished for his crimes against humanity, like real world guilt and consequence for the decisions he's made. As he faces the consequences for the evil he's inflicted on others, he cynically rages against Jesus. Think about that. He has to lift his body up by the nails, pain shooting through him to take in breath and scream out against Jesus, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The rage inside of him, there's no remorse. There's no regret, no repentance. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not thinking of those he's hurt and asking for their healing. Life has not worked out the way he wanted or planned and God is to blame and he's angry. He demands for how God can earn back his allegiance or his approval. And so being very specific here, he wants Jesus to remove the consequences for the evil he has done, but he has no interest in a relationship with God. David Gooding writes, there's, there's no fear of God, no confession of guilt, no expression of repentance, no request even for divine forgiveness. In fact, instead of the fear of God, doesn't it sound like he thinks God should be afraid of him? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But before I'm too harsh on the raging criminal, I have to confess, the roots of that same spirit can often be in me. Have you ever had just a periods, extended periods of living out of your own strength? Of, of chasing life your own way, doing things your way. Maybe you're actually even trying to live a godly life, just not including God at all in it. And things start to unravel pretty quick. And in those moments, I can feel the root of what was in this criminal's heart begin to grow in my own. It's more subtle for sure. Aren't, aren't you the Christ? Can't you stop some of this? Can't you clean this up? But even more so, as I've thought about the heart of Christ in this passage, there are so many hardships and difficulties in this life. 
And a lot of them can be completely unrelated to our own failures or to consequences of something we've done. It's just things that are really hard and they hurt very deeply. Things that can make me, and maybe you ask, are you not the Christ? Can't you stop this? Don't you have the power to prevent this even now? Though we don't have the fullest answer here, I have found powerful resources for hope and strength when I see Jesus completely undeserving, no sin of his own to blame, in the throes of untold suffering, patiently enduring, trusting in the Father's goodness, trusting that something far greater is taking place, trusting something that could transform the tragedy of his death and suffering and resurrection into the redemption of those he loves. It's a powerful source of hope. But Luke now turns to the other criminal. He says, the other thief rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You see, both Matthew and Mark, Luke tell us that when the crucifixion started, it was actually both criminals started heaping insults on Christ. Both of them are yelling and ridiculing him. But Luke's account reveals after a while, one of the thieves grows silent. And as he watches, and as he listens, maybe as he saw how Jesus was silent, as he's mocked and ridiculed, maybe he heard the prayer of Christ, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Something in that thief's heart changed, and he turns to repentance and faith. Hearing the other criminal raging at Jesus now, he can't take it anymore, and he he responds. He says, do you not fear God? Think about that. Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The criminal calls out, do you not fear God? He says, you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed, justly, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, at the heart of repentance and faith is understanding our guilt. It was my sin that held him there. Our guilt and Jesus' innocence. We're receiving what we deserve, what we have earned, but he now sees Jesus has done nothing wrong. Even now as he's being crucified, he can find no sin on his lips or in his heart. The heart of salvation is reverence for God as we confess our sin and receive Christ's righteousness. And so the scene ends, the thief turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Michael Card points out that this unnamed thief, he's the only person in the Bible who calls Jesus by his personal name without affixing some sort of title to it, as if their mutual suffering has placed them on this intimate first name basis. When the thief does that, he becomes the first to address Jesus the way we now get to, as a friend as a brother. 
And he becomes the first one to be drawn to the crucified Christ. He doesn't offer any reasons. He doesn't give any defense as to why Jesus should say yes. He only asks for mercy. That's all any of us could ask for. Jesus, remember me. So I read this week that the last words of the astronomer Copernicus spent his life studying the intricacy with which God created the heavens and the earth. His dying words were this. I do not ask for the grace that you gave to St. Paul, nor can I dare to ask for the grace that you granted to St. Peter, but the mercy which you did show to the dying robber, that mercy show to me. So Luke ends by saying, Jesus said to the dying robber, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This humble cry for mercy receives full acceptance from Jesus. So my prayer for us this week, as we walk with Christ to the cross, as we remember his death and his resurrection, I'm praying that we, like the dying thief, would see the loving and sinless heart of Jesus, a heart that cries out for forgiveness for his enemies. And may we, like him, rest in hope in the mercy of Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and how it reveals your heart for sinners like me. Your desire to be reconciled to us at all costs to you. I thank you that right now the prayer of Jesus is being prayed over us and it's being answered as you freely offer forgiveness to those who rest solely on your mercy. So I do pray this week we would be drawn to our crucified and now risen Savior as we see his heart of love and forgiveness for us. It is in your Holy Son's name that we pray. Amen.